Yeah, let's do it. I'm pumped. Let's let the healing begin. God help you if you use voiceover in your work, my friends. God help you. It's flaccid, sloppy writing. I don't want you to be the guy in the PG-13 movie. Everyone's really hoping makes it happen. I want you to be like the guy in the rated R movie, you know? The guy you're not sure whether or not you like yet. Hello and welcome to this edition of the Get Your Film Fix podcast. I am Chapin Hemingway, joined as always by Lee Carlo and Jeremy Fisk. And this week we are going to be discussing Adam McKay's Vice, uh, a film about Vice President Dick Cheney and the Bush administration. And then we're going to move on to a discussion of film resources, and I'll get into more detail about that later. And finally, we're going to wrap it up with our top five Christian Bale, I mean, actor transformations. (laughs) Just assume it's Christian Bale. (laughs) What do you say? I want you to be my VP. I want you. You're my vice. Well, George, I, uh, I'm the CEO of a large company. And I have been Secretary of Defense. And I have been White House Chief of Staff. The vice presidency is a mostly symbolic job. Uh-huh. However, if we came to a, uh, different understanding. I can handle the more mundane jobs overseeing bureaucracy, military, energy, and uh, foreign policy. Yeah, right. I like that. Okay, guys. So um, I saw Vice uh, uh, the day after Christmas, and so it's been a while, but I've, I've had a quite a bit of time to think about it, and both in the movie theater and afterwards, um, I was thinking a lot about uh, Oliver Stone. I was kind of reminded of his movies um, from, from Vice, and um, I think what he and Adam McKay do are, is very similar. They have different, um, I think... The means and the the end goals are sort of a little bit different. McKay, I think, uses comedy where uh, Oliver Stone uses kind of high drama um, and melodrama to get at, at what they does. But they're sort of their tools are the same. Montage, you know, different kind of footage from um, uh, you know all over the place. Uh, and I, I started to think about Oliver Stone's reputation now. He, you know, he famously made a movie about uh, George W. Bush and the Bush administration. Um, you know, about ten years ago, right when, the, right when the uh, I think Obama got elected. But um, he's, you know, he's he was at one point kind of the political voice of his generation. Um, he did a, he did a couple he did three movies about Vietnam, a couple of which we've talked about on this podcast before. Um, he did that film Nixon, and of course W, as I mentioned. Um, and JFK. I think. Oh, JFK too. Yeah, thank you. And I, I started to think about, well, you know, Oliver Stone, I think now maybe has the reputation of being a little bit wacky. Um, but I, I'm not really interested in you guys and what you're, if you guys agree with me about uh, my kind of comparison with between McKay and Stone. But do you guys see uh, McKay emer- emerging as kind of the voice, the political voice of a generation? And you know, in 10 years or 20 years, are we going to look back at this film and say, this was a little out there. Like maybe we look back at, uh, Oliver Stone that way. That's a great question. I mean, I didn't even think of the comparisons, but they, they are right on. And I think if you, uh, if you said that to McKay, I think he would be flattered to be, um, considered 
sort of uh, this generation's Oliver Stone. Now, whether or not um, history's going to uh, pan out that way is is definitely yet to be determined because basically we're basing this off of this movie and I would say to a lesser extent the big short yeah um but I think the biggest difference and you already talked about it was it is sort of their tonal um presentations of how they do their movies and McKay, coming from the comedy background that he does, obviously he tries to put a bit more um, humor into his movies. Right. The problem with this, and it's one of the problems I had with Vice, is if you can't if you can't toe that line tonally between the humor and the seriousness of the events that happened, and and quite frankly, happened relative, uh, relatively recently, then you're going to have issues. And I think Vice falls into that uh, many times. And that that was my biggest you're, you're saying, problem. You're saying like the, the comedic sort of presentation in yeah, Vice. Yeah, because I mean, it wasn't even that. What are we talking about? A decade ago? And, and, you know, we all, we're all old enough to have lived through this. And I felt like you know, there were certain moments, there were a lot of moments in this where the comedy just didn't fit the dramatic circumstances of something that has happened in real life, and it was it was off-putting. Hmm. What about you, Lee? Well, what I think is makes this kind of an interesting discussion to kick things off is is of all the directors in the world, uh, who would have thought we'd be having this comparison discussion with Oliver Stone? about Adam McKay, director of Anchorman and the other guys. Um, you know, he's obviously most recently done The Big Short and now Vice, so perhaps he's starting to get a little bit more of a serious reputation. But, you know, having come from those sort of, you know, outrageous Will Ferrell comedies that I'm not a particularly huge fan of, you know, I'm always sort of thrown by the fact that he's directing these. But, you know, I think Jeremy made the point that the difference and you even brought it up, Chapin, is the, the comedy aspect of his work. And I think maybe I, to a certain extent, um, have the opposite reaction to Vice as Jeremy did. Um, I, I feel like, you know, his problem is he's just got to decide what he wants to do. He's got to pick one. Does he want to be a comedy director? Does he want to be serious? You can do both, but he doesn't seem to have that balancing act down pat yet. So you guys didn't find the comedy in the way that he presented it slightly inappropriate at times for what I, I thought the serious the, nature of of the film that he was that he was portraying. I thought the self aware the self awareness aspects of Vice were the best parts of the movie by far, and those were that's the, not what I'm talking that, about. But those were the parts that I think you know gave some chuckles. Now, whether or not there was a joke here or there that, you know, felt like it was perhaps too soon is another story. But for me, like what I what I found refreshing and somewhat like almost light about this movie that dealt with a lot of very serious subjects was that self-awareness. You know, I think uh, specifically of the the dinner scene with Alfred Molina um, that -hmm. I thought was great. And that was funny. And it was, you know, an example of some of the other things that were done well like that throughout the movie but then it would then you'd have you know 
actors acting in a totally different movie, tonally wise, the direction totally different tonally, and I just felt like he needed to pick one here. Yeah, I mean, if I had to give, a, I, I see, I thought that scene didn't really work, and just because of everything else in the movie, like you're saying, like there are, like these actors are acting in a different movie than that Alfred Molina scene. Yes, I agree. And it's, and it's like the same thing with the end credit scene yep. that happens in the middle of the movie. Like that felt totally flat. I mean, Lee, you and I went to see this movie together, um, and there wasn't a chuckle in like in the theater when the end credits started going no because it was out of place i liked it on its own as like a scene by scene thing and the alfred molina scene same thing but it didn't fit in this movie um and that's what i mean about him trying to make up his mind like i'm not sure he really had a grasp on what tone he wanted to set here and i think that comes from kind of this you know stemming from chapin's question is he trying to be the next oliver stone subconsciously or otherwise or is he you know a, a director that comes from will ferrell comedies that is you know delving into a serious subject matter with a sense of humor but i don't think that's necessarily wrong like i kind of no it's that. okay to do but it didn't it but my point is that this movie couldn't pick one like it 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 was I think, the I think oliver you can stone do, I melodrama think you can do mixed both. with the comedy and I think a good example of doing them both is this year in Black Klansman. I think that worked on both levels, and yeah. and and sort of also using uh, using past history to build up to where we are today, and using modern f- or or footage, real footage, like blending that all together perfectly. I think Black Klansman's an example of how to do it, and Vice was clunky. I don't dislike it. I, I, I just thought it was clunky at points. No, I think I, I, think I totally agree. <laughs> I just think for me, what I, I was more refreshed by the, the, the comedy in this movie where I think you found it off-putting, but I, I'm 100% agreement with you that uh, it can be done well like in a movie, you know, to Black Klansman, like Black Klansman to a certain extent, and here it just didn't work. The balancing act didn't work. And that's why I feel like maybe he's not cut out for that balancing act. He's got to either pick one. I like the big short. I don't feel like that had quite as much of the self-awareness comedy in it. There was some, you know, uh, clever one-liners and some, you know, uh, lighthearted characters and such in it. But other than that, I don't think it was the same issue. Well, for me... um I, I was just kind of I think the what I initially left the film with was I, I was glad that he did not make this I'm glad he made it the way he did. Um I, I, I don't necessarily agree with you, Lee. I think I think the big short kind of set the template for this movie and, and how it was gonna use, you know, these different sort of self aware scenes. I think it is, I think this I think the the big short is as as self aware as Vice is, um, if not more so. Oh for sure. But um I, I I was happy that he told the story that way. I, I'm not saying that it worked. Um, and I also felt, I have another comment on that, but um, we'll get to it a little bit. But I, 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 I was glad that he, you know, did something differently. Um, it's funny, you know, I'm glad you brought up Black Klansman, Jeremy. I, you know, my, I went back and I've been kind of reviewing our, our podcast just in order to get ready for whenever we do our fixies. And um, I think, you know, we all were kind of moved into a, some degree or another by Black Klansman. But that movie, I think, w- was, you know, quite a lot more traditional than we expected. 
Um, but that being said, I was thinking about this after seeing Vice, listening to the Black Klansman pl- podcast, and I think um, uh, before the film I watched yesterday, which I'll talk to you guys about later, I um, I thought that moment where you are connect at the end where you're connecting back to the real David Duke and the um, the Charlottesville footage was like one of the most I think the most powerful you know two minutes in movies this year or at least that I I had seen um, and. Uh, I think that kind of sort of that those that 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 wasn't exactly what um, McKay was doing here, but that sort of kind of using our sort of real understanding of 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 real life events, connecting them back with these sort of more dramatized scenes is kind of what McKay is doing. I mean, he's doing it through comedy. I think they were. Yeah, I think they were both doing the same thing. I just think uh, Black Klansman and Spike Lee were more successful mm-hmm. at but, it. And but I, my question for you, Chapin, is you like the way that this was, the way he went about making this, but, like, which way did you like? I mean, the, it, he has so many approaches here. He has, like, he's trying to tell the story in, like, a meta-type way. He has a voiceover narrating the paint-by-number a biopic that it is he has you know um i do not think it's a paint by number biopic. oh my god it totally is right no, from the opening scene I, oh my I god i actually like how it was put together differently than other oh my biopics. god start with when he's before he's famous well, let's cover about, that See everything about cover any, everything that happens ever for two yeah, minutes everything you just don't like biopic like how do you ever do a movie about somebody who is real without calling it like you pick just don't something like pick something to focus on they covered every little thing that he ever did in his entire life from the age of 18 yeah, but until I, he had his heart surgery and they covered it for two minutes except for the heart surgery which lasted 25 minutes yeah but it wasn't paint by numbers it was it did cover a, a vast majority of his career but it he did it in a different way well, because he added those moments of you know self awareness, he added it, it, there was little things that he did, but none of it was consistent. That was the problem, and 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 to me, a paint by number biopic, the way I define that is when you span too much time, so you can't cover any one thing too much. So you literally got a glimpse at everything that he did from the age of eighteen until he almost died, and you got no real specific, you know insight on any one of those specific things what i thought was done relatively well and it was sort of the culmination of the movie is you saw how maybe all those little things played a big part in where we are today but i didn't learn anything interesting about you know dick cheney really like i just kind of i just kind of got a, a, a wikipedia recap of the 2000s that's not true i mean what i like about to answer the question you're you're you proposed to Chapin is like what I like about McKay's style in this and the big short is it's a nice way to be able to tell a complicated story simply. And I but think which way are you guys to like, what, what is it that exactly that you're describing that he did simply the way he uses characters talking to the camera or puts them in a, a news station or the way, you know, he, the smart way he used Jesse uh, Plemons in this movie, which we won't spoil, but Jesse Plemons is the narrator, but he had, he's not just some random person explaining things. It, it ties back into the story, which I thought was really clever. I like how he does that, and I like how he's able to put together the past in a way that he can explain it to his audience in, 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 where it's entertaining, but all, also... Um, 
lets people understand what actually happened because it was a very complicated time and it was really hard to put all those pieces together even when you were living through it. Yeah, I mean, to me, that sounds like a bunch of different approaches to make this movie, like the the voiceover, the talking to the camera. The, I but felt it like all he had, serves the same thing to see, tell I felt the like story. it was messy. I felt like it was it was trying to do too many things at once. Like I felt like it needed to pick something like either have Jesse Plemons narrate this story or have the characters talk to the camera because none of them were done consistently. enough. the only one that was consistent start to finish was the was the narration. But the talking to the camera, like the Alfred Molina scene, things like that were so scattered. Like, they weren't consistent enough to say, okay, this is the style of movie he's making. See, I don't mind it. I just didn't like some of it tonally with the subject matter it was portraying. And I just, I think it just missed and was clunky tonally. But I don't dislike how he tries to put these stories together. I think it's innovative and clever and... Uh, at least something different. And that's why I don't think it's very paint by numbers. Chapin. Solomon's here. Yes. So um, <laughs> I I kind of agree with Lee uh, in the... in the, the uh, No, 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 no. Hold on, hold on. Uh, in, the, in the idea of it being a little... In terms of the narrative, like where the, where the story takes us, it is a little bit of a traditional biopic. I, I did not get a... I mean... I understand the inclusion of his early life in Wyoming um, in the beginning of the movie and understanding, you know, Lynn Cheney's role in this is very important. And so I don't know how you would do it without that. But um, I, I I felt like when we got to the to the Bush administration, it, we kind of raced through it. And that that was all that, you know, the I, I, I have to go back and 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 you know time it out but you know we spent a lot of we spent a lot of time in the reagan and or not uh, yeah the reagan and the ford administration and then we kind of race through the bush administration um and i wanted more of that because i think that was ultimately the kind of the the point of the movie was to say here's this is what this man did in um during those years although of course i think that what we understand from this film is that um you know, it, it was kind of a lead up to that. There was there they took steps early on in the seventies and eighties to kind of grease the wheels to allow Cheney to rise to power. Um, but I don't agree with you, Lee, that that it wasn't successful. I found all the emotional beats, the sort of up and downs, the sort of oscillating between comedy and drama to actually really work. Um, I think there were moments when he was experimental that that weren't completely successful. I'd say that the Shakespearean scene and mm-hmm. the Alfred Molina scene, I was not completely convinced by. I know you liked it, Lee. You mentioned that, but um, I, I kind of I thought that he kind of I felt that that he did it sort of clunkily in in the Big Short. I felt those cutaways to like Margot Robbie and. Selena Gomez to be a little bit, um, a little bit. They didn't, they didn't work quite as well for me. But I think he like really nailed it in this film. Um, uh, not, they, you know, they, they, it, they may not have been the most appropriate thing. I agree with you about that, Jeremy. But they did not feel as out of place as those um, kind of uh, breaking the fourth wall ex- explanations of you know these economic financial instruments um, in The Big Short. Um, but I have to say. 
so I would say that you know on, on an emotional level, it really worked for me. I think it did kind of explain things very well. But I had I have to say that I, I left this movie. I really, really, really wanted to see it again before we did this podcast because there it's so dense as we've described. There's so much kind of different things happening at the same time and all these different styles. And I it, it I think we all would have benefited from a second viewing. Um, but you know, at the end of the day, I, I kind of felt myself a couple of days later th- saying. Man, I, I I wish you know with all these great actors and this performance by Christian Bale, and I kind of wish we had a little bit more of the of the traditional you know sort of scenes, you know, um, you know actors speaking dialogue to, to each other, and um, there were there were plenty of those, but I I almost wanted I, I felt that we were lacking that a little bit. Well, that's a good segue, I think, into what we should talk about next, which is a huge part of this movie and we haven't really discussed, is Christian Bale's performance. Mm -hmm. And I know a lot of people, in a way, at least from what I've been reading, gathering, are are starting to grow a little tired of the, the huge, you know, transformation, makeups, you know, like, hey, dude, just just act yeah but um well I'll, I'll wait to s- let you know how i felt about it but obviously this movie hugely depends on bale's performance uh what'd you guys think well i want to preface my opinion of bale's performance by saying there is a distinction between a bad performance and not liking a performance i think his performance was just fine i did not like it though does that make sense yeah, but why? He wasn't a bad actor. I felt like he was in the wrong. Like he, nobody told him that this had some. That this movie had a sense of humor. Like, I, and I just kind of felt like he was just taking it all so seriously. He but had isn't a couple, that what Dick Cheney was doing? Isn't that more about Dick okay, Cheney? Than- yeah, but that's fine. So make that movie then. But but Adam McKay was making a movie about Dick Cheney that had a sense of humor you know, regardless of your feelings towards that. And nobody told Bale. And I had the same problem with Amy Adams. It was the same thing. I think both performances were fine. Um, I'm not going to, you know, spend years raving about either one of them, but I didn't, I just didn't like them. I felt like they weren't in the right movie. Chapin? I I can understand that um, point of view. Um, I agree with Jeremy. Like, that was who the character was. Like, Cheney, you know, maybe... Your your problem, Lee, is with really with McKay. Dick Cheney. Yeah, oh, yeah. Dick <laughs> no, Cheney. with yeah. But, no, with, the, it, but well, with the director, in yep. that in that, in that yep. you know, you uh, here's this kind of introverted, um, more sort of cerebral man who isn't very uh, expressive or funny in this rather irreverent uh, depiction of you know a thirty year time period very important time period in in american history and um i i certainly understand that i think i but i think to sort of i I think your 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 fight is with someone else i I think no bale did his best with could very well be the case and and that does stem back to my issues with mckay not really choosing a tone for his movie but if i can make one other point that kind of falls into what you were saying jeremy about people kind of growing tired of the method uh, method acting way of Christian Bale is, you know, I don't, I don't feel like you needed all the deep breaths and like the exact imitation of, of how 
Dick Cheney is and looks like I felt like it was unnecessary into and there's a right across screen from him there was a perfect um juxtaposition of that with Sam Rockwell's performance who you know doesn't look anything like George W. Bush and you know a couple times sounded like him but that wasn't important like it, it his performance I really liked because you know th- there was some good moments of humor there was you know you kind of had a maybe I mean some would argue it's not but maybe an exaggerated version of you know some of his behavior but that to me worked it had nothing to do with what he looked like or sounded like so you know I maybe agree with some of the naysayers on bail just in terms of going so far in the direction of making sure you look and sound and breathe and everything just like him well I under I, I get that, and I'm in a way growing weary of it in general. But there's something about the way Bale does it, not only in this movie but m- most of the movies he does this in that he just nails it. And I absolutely love this performance, and I think this movie was twenty times better because Bale was able to capture uh, Dick Cheney in the way that he he was. Um, and I, I, I disagree that with you, Lee, that he felt like he was in a different movie. I think that was totally purposeful because that is how sort of Dick Cheney ha- has moved his way through life, is being that introvert, that that uh, thinker, quote unquote, that that sort of quietly acts in the background. I think that was totally on purpose, um, and I absolutely fell for it. I thought I thought Christian Bale was amazing in this movie. Um, and he outacted everyone else. I think Sam Rockwell was fine. I love Sam Rockwell, but I, you know, it was it wasn't anything that I, I I thought was amazing. I thought Amy Adams was borderline terrible. I thought she was the one that felt like she was in a different movie. Mm. Um, and I and Steve Carell was a joke in this. I thought okay, I want so badly to like Steve Carell. Why I am thought I he was a still an anchorman. That's how I felt about him in this. That he was still an anchorman. Is it like? Uh, okay, so I don't. I don't. I think for me, it's The Office. Like I just have a hard time, you know, getting away from Michael Scott for some reason. Like I want so badly to like him as an actor, but he wasn't I, good I just, in this. I can't. He, did, he, I can't he didn't put up. See, at least if we want to compare the the Bale in the Sam Rockwell versions, at least they're putting up a different facade. Like like. Um, Obviously, what Christian Bale's doing is taking it literal and taking it to the extreme, but it works. And what Sam Rockwell's doing is take not taking it quite as literal, putting a little flair and touches of George W. Bush here and there, but bringing a, a new character. Steve Carell is just taking Steve Carell and then trying to make some faces that look like Donald Rumsfeld that more look like his character from um, Anchorman and, and giving up on everything else. So I think that's okay, what the difference so, is. So some blame goes to, blame or credit goes to the actors here, but where is the director tell, like deciding whether he's going to have an all-out, you know, bail, let's make sure everybody looks and sounds but just I, I like these think, people. But I do think, like or, I said, I think it was on purpose because I think Dick Cheney is the, the he is what this movie's about. It's not about anyone else. And Dick Cheney moves through life quietly, unassuming in a way, but behind the scenes, sort of the puppet master pulling the strings in a a very terrible way, as we come to find out. And I think that 
can be different than everybody else around him. I do agree with you that he should have figured out something a little better for Amy Adams, and I blame McKay for that because her character was way too earnest and fell out of place. Um, Right from the opening scene. Whereas, yeah, yeah, whereas Steve Carell's character felt way too joking and out of place. Um, Sam Rockwell, I thought, was fine, and he worked. But like I said, yeah, I think I I don't know what it is about Christian Bale and and just you know his method performances where he puts on the weight or loses the weight and just kind of goes all out. There's something that clicks in him that is really fun to watch, and I think it's why Chapin you fell in love with him initially, and that we've fallen in love with him through the years is because there is something amazing to this. I know we're all kind of seen it a bunch. I don't want to say we're tired of it, but we've seen it a bunch, and maybe the magic's been taken away for us, but. It wasn't for me on this. He is, uh, I think he gets perhaps a lot of the, maybe a lot of the blame for this, the, what you de- what you described, Jeremy, the, the idea of this, people getting tired of these kinds of performances um, because he kind of originated it. I mean, there's, there's an argument to be made that uh, Daniel Day-Lewis is kind of the guy everybody thinks of. De Niro. But, or I mean, De Niro. But he, but, yeah. he, but I think Bale is the guy who, who I looked at when we were tr- looking at for transformations and there was a, somebody made a chart of all of, of Christian Bale's like weight gain and losses between all the, these movies. And in like a very short period of time, he yeah, like lost gain, lost gain, lost gain. Um, and, um, but I think the reason he gets so much criticism is I think other people try to do it and don't do it as well. I like Jared Leto, who I, I, I really is yeah. one, of the, one of the actors I just can't stand. You know, one of the few I can't stand tries to do <laughs> he it. He just and, keeps trying, though. You got to. Yeah, you got to. Keeps gotta, trying and failing. Um, but yeah, he's like that character wasn't even fat, and he <laughs> gained sixty pounds. Right, but but I mean, I think the the transformation was totally necessary. I mean, you, I think one testament to Bale's performances when when he was announced as dick cheney i don't think anybody blinked an eye i mean it was but the idea it kind of occurred to me later that the idea that you think of casting this guy who we know most you know the public knows as mostly a 60 to 70 year old man as batman yeah as the guy you're talking about yeah as the guy you know who is play you know is christian bale who's you know an attractive man in his you know early 40s uh is kind of absurd but then you know the I think his transformations are are they are unfortunately effective. You know, they are especially when he was. Why do you the, say unfortunately? Well, because I I wish that we could go in, you know, like in the theater and 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 someone could someone could be playing. Um, I think I remember uh, Bradley Cooper. I didn't see it, but Bradley Cooper did a performance of of the. Um, an adaptation of the elephant man on on the on the stage and he didn't wear any prosthetic he just did the he was just kind of with his body told the story of you know being john merrick and and having those uh, uh, you know those hideous dis, you know uh disabilities that he, he he just sort of pretended with his body and i think it would be great if 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 you know acting could be that way that you could kind of you know show the world that with your performance but that's not what movies are i mean we look for a certain another level of realism we look for another level of um of kind of absorption into the story and we you know Uh and because of that he has to have makeup on and he has to gain weight and like when he was it was effective when he was younger especially like you see that you know the sort of the 
the uh, when he was the youngest chief of staff um, ever for Ford, you know, he was a heavier guy and starting to put on weight. And like, I think that kind of vociferous, uh, you know, kind of consuming attitude that we, you see kind of manifest, manifest itself there with the eating and like the, you know, the drinking that kind of makes sense with this kind of character. And you see that, you know, he was a bigger guy, but he wasn't the large man he became and that kind of stuff. It matters. And, um, so, but I, I just to go back to a couple of things you guys said. I actually didn't mind Steve Carell in this in this um, in this performance. I thought it was interesting. Someone brought up like he's essentially doing Michael, you know, uh, doing um, uh, Donald Rumsfeld as Michael Scott, and I actually didn't really. I thought that was kind of funny, um, and it kind of worked with the movie. Um, now that you're saying that about Amy Adams, I think you guys might be right. But um, so I, yeah, I think. Well, can I? Say another point about Christian Bale sure. before we we get off of him is that I think as an actor, and I, I think as an actor he needs to do this stuff to be able to act, and I don't necessarily hold that against him, but I think he needs to be able to grasp onto something, whatever it may be, the weight gain, um, some sort of mental disability even as maybe batman there must have been something there as an actor he need the phys, the the physicality of it like i feel like he can't do it without doing this sort of stuff and i think that's just his process and i may be completely wrong we may see him one day where he he feels like he leaves all that behind and he just sort of becomes a character but i get the sense that he needs to be able to grasp onto one of these sort of levers to be able to pull these things off. And I I think it makes for a great performance, but I don't know. I mean, maybe purists may say, well, then maybe he's not that great of an actor. I don't know. It's just I think, food for thought. I mean, I think he said as much, so I think you're right. He he talked about becoming, you know, he, he played Bruce Wayne, Batman, af- right after The Machinist, and he gained, like, so much weight afterwards. I think he went, like, way over what Nolan anticipated and then had to lose some. But the, the feeling like a bear and, like, being able to fight people, and I think you're, I think, of course, like, not only does your physicality affect the way your performance is interpreted by the audience. I mean, of course, but it, it, it aids, it aids you as an actor. Like if you, if you've right. Got but that, I think there's a difference between an actor that puts some sort of physicality towards it as part of the tools and where Christian Bale goes. He, that's where he starts. That's sort of his latching point and needs it to be able to get the rest of the character out. And I, I don't think there's, I don't find one way right and one way wrong, but I, I would say like some purists would, would uh, find fault in it. Also, do you think like uh, Paul Giamatti is outside Bale's house with like on strike because he's taking his jobs away? That's true. Larry, all right. Still photographer was right in my way. Huh? The video went in and out. We broke off. Please take care of the video. What do you do for me, Joe? Because I can't see the thing. From what I could tell, from what I could tell, from what I could hear, because I could hardly say. I saw well, you could tell. The... You missed the whole tape. No, no, no. It was great. It's great. I think he needs you know, more this money. This isn't. This isn't enough. I need, I need more money. I think he needs more money. Every, every take, I don't have enough money. Yeah, no, it's. Give, oh, give okay, I, thanks. I, I, well, I think it's really developing very, very well, and particularly the end. When I, what I'd like to get into more quickly is the threat of the violence. Okay. Okay. Well, you let me do saying? this. Let me take out Gino's balls. 
in a plastic bag. Take it out of my pocket. Hold up his balls. The balls will never read. They're not going to read his balls. Well, balls will read. Why won't balls read? Oh, so, what do you got in plastic, you mean? I'll be in a plastic bag with some, uh, what is it, the formaldehyde or something? Yeah, but it's like a little graphic for this because I'd rather, I, that's a big thing to do. This is later. This is, do you this know is what you're doing? Huh? This is just the do threat. Do you even know what you're doing? This is just the threat of the violence, okay? What I'm concerned about, if this guy says something to you, you should slap him. Like what? Oh, just like a little, yeah, don't talk to me until like I that? finish. Yeah, that kind of thing. You like know. That no, kind no of that's, too, that's too hard. Huh? That's too hard. It's How many takes are we going to do? Two more. Two more. Two more. You shoot too much, Marty. No, 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 it's getting better and better each yeah, time. Yeah, 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 yeah. Joe, two more, two more takes, one right after the other. Okay. Same slate, same slate, but get the energy better in the second take right, that way. Ready. You know, Seinfeld, we did two takes and we were done. We're just getting into it. It's rich. It's getting better and better every time you do it. I right, try and watch this one, okay? Uh, no, I, I, I was going to watch, but I couldn't. I couldn't get away from the earphones. Well, then, then cut it or something. No, you were going well. You were doing really good. I'm not going to break it up. All right. Um, this is something I've been wanting to talk to you guys about, and if this doesn't work out, we can always cut it and we can do it another time. Um, but I've been thinking about uh, directors and how they use the resources they have and the different resources they have, and I've sort of been fascinated by this subject, and hopefully it comes together into an interesting 10-minute discussion or so here. But um, the, I think it, we had a, a perfect jumping-off point for the discussion between the two movies we just talked about, Vice and Roma. Um, Vice is a $60 million movie that shot for 55 days, um, and Roma is a $15 million movie that shot for 115 days. Um, And I am just fascinated by the way different directors use both their budgets uh, and especially the amount of time that they have and the time that they need. I know famously Steven Spielberg, who probably could shoot uh, for as long as he ever wanted to, likes to have a kind of a short schedule so that like uh, for, you know, for whatever reason that that helps his process. Uh, We love Fincher, of course, and that he doesn't seem to be able to make a movie under 100 days. and uh, Kubrick, famously one of the greatest directors of all time, took you know years to make Eyes Wide Shut, and uh, had you know pr- pr- it wasn't uncommon for pr- for his movies to you know take a year to f- finish filming. Um, and I think these directors are, are sort of nimble in the way they do it. I know Kubrick and um, and uh, Fincher in particular, like you know, have sort of smaller crews than most people do in order to be able to shoot that long because obviously you, it's more expensive. But you know, specifically comparing these two movies that we've just seen, I, I I think it's really interesting. If you told me those numbers, I would have sort of reversed them for Vice. I would have thought that Vice you know took 115 days to shoot with 40 locations or whatever it was, and the sort of smaller, more intimate film you know was a quick kind of thing, but it wasn't. And um, I guess this is a question for all of us, but Jeremy, you work on film sets a lot more than we do and have more experience with these bigger budget movies, so maybe you can talk a little bit about it, but I'm, I'm just sort of fascinated with how you know, these directors use these different resources. Yeah, well, I first noticed this um, when, I, when I actually was working on Shutter Island, uh, the Scorsese movie, and I, I thought to myself, just because I, I, I was surrounded by all these sets and just the, the amount of manpower and the amount of labor and the amount of money that he was spending, and I was like, I, I was like, you know what? I would like to see Scorsese be limited a little bit. I would like somebody to say to Scorsese, "No, you can't have you can't do that. You don't have the time to do that. We don't have the money to do that." And see if that sparks a sort of creativity to work around those parameters because I do think when like for Scorsese's newest movie, The Irishman, I mean, it's over 100 million dollars and it's been in production which seems like forever. 
I do think that some of these better directors lose some of their creativity when they're allowed to have anything they want. And I, I know that seems sort of opposite of what a lot of people would think. A lot of people would think, well, you know, here's a great director. Let's give him what he needs, give him the time, give him the money, and they're going to have this amazing piece of art. And sometimes, yes, it does work out that way. Kubrick's a great example. But I also think that having some sort of restriction with these directors, especially the ones who sort of grew up learning with restrictions, like Scorsese, like Coppola, I think giving a little bit of restriction is an interesting way for them to tap into a, a side of their creativity that they haven't had to tap into for, for years. What What is your feeling on time? Um, you know, days. Well, personally, I like a, a lot less days. But uh, well, that's yeah. just selfishly. But I mean, um, it looks. I just looking. But it I up, know. I think Shutter I, Island had a reason, four month shooting. Literally, was shooting for four months. It seems like. I mean, you could probably tell yeah, us better. And, but and RIPD had like a five and a half month shooting schedule. You know, like I don't know. I think restrictions on both time and money in general are a good thing. Uh, time is more of a personal. For the director, mm -hmm. I think some can make it work better with more time. Some can make it work better with less. Like he said with Spielberg, he likes to have that restriction. Um, but that's a sort of a personal preference. But like I said, I think having some sort of restrictions on both time and money can allow for some creativity that wouldn't necessarily be there. You, you sort of get something because... You have to figure it out. I, you know, you got a week left of shooting. How do we wrap this up? And and, and I, I, you know, eight times out of ten, you're going to wrap it up in a more interesting way than you would if you had uh, unrestricted time and money. So, for me, it's it's much more outside looking in, and you know, I just kind of think about this based on you know my impression of the movies and and with a movie like Roma like I think about that and I think okay like that's a that's a patient movie that's a director that was very intentional with his choices and he you know I'm picturing him at his pre-production desk saying okay here's the amount of money I have but here's all the things I want to get done you know, it's going to take a little longer, but, you know, we're going to stretch the dollar as best we can. And, it, it and just, the dollar to, goes farther in Mexico City. I mean, that well, also has something to right. do with it. But, to, I mean, even take that out of the equation. I, to me, it's just, you know, the long shooting schedule is kind of a, a indicative of kind of the patience of that movie to me. Just, like, totally on the outside looking in. That's and the planning. That feels like. um, yes, and the planning, too, is another big piece. And then with a movie like Vice... And this isn't really totally fair, but like I felt the movie had a bit of an identity crisis, and like it, to me, it felt like you know somebody with a lot of money and you know uh, uh, almost you know a lot of toys, and he felt like okay, let me use all this before somebody takes it away, and so you know they shoot it real quick, and and that's where I feel like you know some of the sometimes you get a a messy movie or you know you know some pieces that don't work or don't all tie together and. And again, I think that's a combination of both things. I don't think it has more to do with the shooting schedule or the budget. I think those two things combined are sort of one and the same. But 
I don't know. I think it all just has to do with, you know, how you use it, like uh, how valuable that time is to you. Like, you know, 60 days <laughs> or 100 days is, you know, no different for if you're Fincher versus, you know, Eastwood. You know what I mean? Like you just it's just the way that you shoot. But yeah, I, I agree with you on Vice and Roma. I mean, I think it would be interesting to see what the sort of level of pre-production for those directors was. I have a feeling that with uh, Roma, Karan was in pre-production figuring out his shots for pro- probably yeah, months, if not years, years yeah. like trying to trying to figure yeah, that out. You're, while you're as right. I feel, I feel like McKay, his pre-production was more on research than the filmmaking aspect of it. I think he probably was trying to get the details as best as accurate as he could, and then sort of the the actual filming uh, pre-production where he was trying to figure out his shots in a story was probably a lot less. Um, just judging by what you said, Lee, as far as the it feeling a bit like a director who had too much money and had to play with all his toys. I think that's right. I think, um, it, I mean, Vice started filming about in September of last year, and I think Roma shot like two years ago, and I have a little article here. They, they spent 973 hours color grading the movie, which <laughs> <It> seems outrageous. <laughs> um, yeah, I just think it's fascinating. I mean, I, I'm, I'm wondering, I guess my question is for you guys, and, um, you know, I've always, and so if you guys have had, at least when we're making our own pro, uh, stuff, have had obviously very, very, very fast schedules and, um, but, and so it's 10 days, yeah, 10 days, 15 (laughs) days, whatever. Um, and now, you know, I, I guess when we, now that we're, I'm shooting commercials and stuff, we have, it's like, it's a similar kind of schedule. It's like a one, you know, it's like a, a one and a half page pages a day kind of thing, which is a pretty slow thing. But, um, you know, it's a different, it's a different medium, so it shouldn't, it's not really comparable, but what I'm, what I'm sort of fascinated by, and maybe you can shed some light on this, Jeremy, is like, you know, that kind of, the, the sort of the amount that you, like a, a movie like Shutter Island, or, a, I'm sorry, not Shutter Island, but a movie like R.I.P.D., which I know was very effects heavy, but also a schedule like a Kubrick or a um, Fincher schedule, where everything is sort of broken down, where you take a 90 or 100 page script, and you're literally doing about a page a day, like how that, I mean, it just must seem so, it's so kind of deconstructed that I, I just wonder how that works. Like, like, how do you get any sense of momentum and feeling of, um, you know, that you're, you know, working towards something? I don't know. I mean, is that kind of... I agree. That's no, what separates I, I, the good directors from the bad, I think. Yeah, it's it's having the whole, the, the whole puzzle uh, completed in your head beforehand, while especially on something that has that many days... Uh, of filming you don't you don't you're not only having the pieces of the puzzle but you're cutting up those pieces and then having to put them together because like you said you could be if it's a super effects heavy movie you could be shooting two lines of dialogue for the day because you're trying to get a a a certain stunt right or something like that because that stuff's all about trying to figure out how to you only how to do that and do it safely and you only got a couple tries at it so um yeah it it is kind of amazing how anything ever comes together when you're when you're piecing such small pieces together well you know one day at a time and then 
how a lot of it, well, you could tell, like, at the end of the day, like, R.I.P.D. did not come together. Um, movies like, I haven't seen it yet, but movies like Equalizer 2, I mean, I, I can't imagine it was, you know, cinematically stunning or anything like that. But, um, yeah, no, I mean, it is, it is interesting trying to figure out, uh, trying to get those small pieces to fit as a whole when you're only looking at them through, you know, a microscope. Um, is someone like Scorsese, is he doing a lot of takes? Is he taking his time in a way that is sort of, that seemed unusual to you? No, he didn't, he actually didn't do a lot of takes. Hmm. Um, he kind of knew what he wanted and, uh, and moved on. That's great. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Okay. Which I hear like Eastwood is the same way. But it doesn't like it, like you said. Fincher takes like a, a, a hundred takes, but I think it's not because he doesn't know what he wants. It's because he's trying to get the minutia of what he wants, um, and he's not you know he, he's not quite getting the details of it on every take. So he has to take a hundred takes because he wants an actor to say a line a certain way. Whereas like maybe Scorsese trusts Leo enough to be like, okay, that's the way that you want to do it. I have a general idea that works. Let's move on. I don't know. It's hard to get in their heads. Yeah. I've heard him say, Fincher say that like in, in regards to being asked about how many takes he does, he, he says, you know, the cheapest thing on a movie set is the film on the camera. And of course now with digital, it's even cheaper. Um, Right. And, you know, you've got everybody there. That's the expense. And then, you know, you might as well shoot as many takes. Of course, that's not fair really to say because, you know, all those that's takes. That's not true because time, yeah, time, time yeah, is time. the most expensive right. thing you have but, on a movie set. So this week we decided to do in honor of Christian Bale's, you know, perhaps not quite a successful transformation to Dick Cheney, according to Lee, at least. Uh, transformation, we did our top five transformations. I'm going to start off with my criteria, but then I'd like to hear your guys'. Um, I have just kind of a random scattering of them that I've like roughly uh, arranged into an order, and I don't want to have any repeats, so I'm going to leave them so that I can put them, slot them in if you guys have any. Uh, what were your guys's? Uh, I also wanted to look for a little bit of. I didn't want it just to be like weight gain, um, although most of that of stuff is either weight or lo- loss. But there's a few of these that I was just thinking like the actor just kind of looked just the way their performance was so transformative that um, it didn't really matter what they look like. Um, did you guys have any specific criteria? Um, my criteria was no Christian Bale performances Ooh. since we're. Uh doing a Christian Bale so that uh, so I, b- I basically only have two on my list okay then I'm gonna I'm gonna <laughs> no, just I, I will, I'm I will just... take that same thing I'm gonna delete the machinist from my list there we go so uh... and um, yeah it doesn't have to be a physical transformation for me but most of these are but I also threw in a couple um, more uh, emotional transfer transformations but you know you can take that for what it is for me, I did. Um, I mean, I, I'm. I don't know this, but I assume you guys avoided any motion capture performances um, or you know digitally altered characters. Um, I also um, really what I was looking for is you know if going into the movie you didn't know this person was in it, you wouldn't have known watching it. So uh, whether that's you know weight gain or loss, whether that's even makeup and costume, that's all on the table. Great. 
Beautiful. Cheap. You you want to kick us off? Sure, I will kick us off. Um, okay, I'm going to start with a little bit of a weird one, but my number five is Eric Bana in Chopper. Have you guys seen this movie? No. no. It is Andrew Don- Dominic's kind of first big breakout hit, um, and I think they're both from Australia. It's an Australian movie about this famous, uh, real um, Australian gangster murderer. Um, and Eric Bana plays him so well. I mean, it is when it is the moment I fell in love with Eric Bana, and he's kind of been disappointing me ever since. But um, he, except in Munich, oh, of course, Munich. Munich. <laughs> um, and he um, he becomes this character, and of course, he's Australian, and this character is Australian, so that works out. But it is such a good performance. It is an amazing, comedic, dramatic, um, uh, astounding performance. Um, but he. Uh, in the beginning of the film, and it's a very low-budget Australian film, in the beginning of the film, he's in prison and is quite svelte and looks more like the Eric Bana we know today. And then um, they cut to him later when he's out of prison and he's gained quite a bit of weight, I think 30 or 40 pounds, and he looks you know, much, much different than the Eric Bana we know today. Um, and he, you know, this was a low-budget movie. He didn't have... He had to gain like 30 or 40 pounds in a, and I think it was like a month or some crazy amount of time. And the transformation is, is spectacular and uh, an astounding performance. And I recommend you guys watch this movie. Um, it's kind of in the vein of the sort of um, London kind of Guy Ritchie early gangster movies, but it's a lot more sure. substantive than that. Ooh, good pick. Right. Something different. Uh, I went with something different for my number five. And we already talked about this person on this podcast, but it's uh, Jesse Plemons in Black Mass. So I worked on Black Mass, and Jesse Plemons um, gained a bunch of weight to be Kevin Weeks. And the reason I put this on my list is because he was so committed to that character that he never lost the weight. (laughs) I was going to (laughs) say. So since that movie... He's been about that big. Uh, poor guy. And uh, I, I always thought that was interesting for an actor to gain weight for a movie and then, whoops, that's who he is now. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like, he's like, I can't keep doing this. Uh, all right. My number five is Hillary Swank in Boys Don't Cry. Because she grew a penis? One <laughs> really did that. Uh, no, I mean, how, when's the last time you guys saw that movie? It's been a long time. I've actually so, never I mean, seen it. She she's so famous for that role that you it's it's hard to forget, or it's easy to forget that it, it was it's quite a transformation. I mean, she like legit yeah. looks like a boy through that entire movie, um, and you know obviously that's the the whole point. But it's it's impressive, and I mean that was an Oscar winning performance, and she obviously you know every time she's in a movie it seems like gets nominated, but. Um, but yeah, it's it's an amazing transformation, or at least disguise, as I guess that movie would suggest. Yeah, it's a good pick. It it, it really is. Okay. Uh, my number four. Um, I'm gonna go with, uh, and I hope I bet this is gonna upset Lee, but I'm gonna go with Russell Crowe in The Insider as Mr. Jeffrey Wigand. Oh, that's a good one. Um, I think he gained some weight for this role, uh, but. To me, um, the real transformation is in the performance and the way he holds himself. It's such a kind of he's such a kind of introverted character that kind of explodes at these moments, and it's such a an incredible performance. And he, I think he was, it was uh, this film. It was, um, it was 
the Insider, Gladiator, and then what was the film after? And I think, oh, A Beautiful Mind. He was nominated three times back to back, and I think he won for the worst performance, which was Gladiator. But this was just an incredible transcendent performance for me um, and one that kind of anchors that movie and, uh, you know, not that it needed anchoring, but it just, just makes that movie even better than it than it already was. That's a great pick. There's an actor we need to see more of. Yeah. Okay, you up, Jeremy? All right, uh, I am, sorry. Um, so my number four, obviously, was probably on a lot of lists, but I, I was really impressed with her um, transformation in this movie. Not only the weight gain, but just the ability to try to, and I know a lot of it was makeup, but just the, I don't know, some people call it courage, call it what you want, to just uh, be ugly. And it's uh, Charlie Theron in Monster. Yeah, I'm going to make a move here. <laughs> Get a quick adjustment. My, my number four. That was also going to be my number four. Um, and it's going to stay that way because I don't think any of my honorable mentions really deserve to be on that list ahead of her. No, I, I, I agree. I mean, for a beautiful woman, she certainly <laughs> um, uh, transforms herself in that movie. Um, so that's my number four as well. Nice. Beautiful. Oh, I'm sorry. On this top five. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Okay. Um, so we talked about this movie, um, a couple weeks ago on the favorite podcast. And I went and watched it as a, of course, uh, too late for to talk about on the podcast, but, uh, I'm going to go with Colin Farrell and the lobster. He gained some weight for this, but, uh, and it was just, um, I was like, I was looking at it and I'm like, he looks different. I think, um, but it was like, it was just, it was just enough weight that it didn't, that he just looked like a normal guy. Um, and yeah. he has that mustache. And I just thought that performance was, um, was so good. He, he, in that film and in, um, killing of a sacred deer, they're two very different performances, but they just, they are so kind of in the vein and capturing the spirit of the films that they are in, um, that I just thought he was <laughs> just so good and, um, funny and I've always liked him and I think he, he's someone who isn't always um, the greatest actor, but can really have these, you know, fantastic performances. And I love it when he does weird movies. And so um, he's my number. Yeah, he's three. one that I think is getting better with age for sure. As an actor, I've always thought he was good in things. Like I, I, I actually think I've always kind of classified him as an underrated actor. Totally. Certainly underappreciated. Yeah. All right. My number three is one of those that, um, well, the transformation was sort of obvious, but it's the risk that the filmmakers and this actor took to to do this transformation, and it's uh, Robert Downey Jr. in Tropic Thunder. <laughs> oh my god! Yeah. Um, I mean, to pull off what's what is essentially blackface, and to pull off um, a what is he Norwegian or Australian actor, yeah. then being. So he's Robert Downey Jr., then he's an Australian actor, and then he's this African-American actor. I mean, yeah. it, uh, it works on uh, a lot of layers, and it, it's, it's really a, a great performance. I did have Tom Cruise from Tropic Thunder as an honorable mention as well. I did, too. I did, too. <laughs> Which is just a fun little uh, performance to watch. Um, my number three is um, the first movie I ever saw this actress in, to my knowledge. Um, so I certainly didn't 
know anything about her or what she really looked like. Um, it is Marianne Cotillard as Edith Pilaf in La Vie en Rose, mm. French Ooh. French film. Um, again, nice like one. Charlize Theron, another beautiful woman playing somebody that isn't quite as well known for her beauty. Um, in this case, a singer, not a murdering prostitute. But um, again, I mean, no surprise, a great performance, but totally uh, transformed her appearance. Great call. Okay. Um, this performance, my number, are we on number threes? No, number twos. I'm sorry. My number two, right? Yes. Yep. Uh, my number, number two, two is a performance. Jeremy, I'm going to be interested in hearing your opinion on Come the Fixies because I'm interested to see how it'll compare to Christian Bale, but that is uh, Bradley Cooper as Jackson Maine in A Star is Born. Not a, not, he doesn't look very different, but he, the, he does enough subtle things. I think really what he did was he... He worked very hard to lower his voice, both both in singing and I think, but more specifically with his dialogue, and yeah, just hung around with his uh, his uh, movie brother there with Sam Elliott. Yeah, um, and uh, it, I I don't know. I think it's a great performance, but I it, he was just I think he he had a lot of baggage going in there as kind of the fratty bro he plays in a lot of roles you know most famously in the hangover movies and um he just had to look uh i think he had to look but also sort of just appear very differently and i think he succeeded and sounds very different as well yeah so hopefully i can get to see that before the fixies it needs to come out somewhere um yeah i was looking it doesn't come out in video until february so that might be tricky that might be tricky. I might have to miss that for the fixies, but um, I, we'll I see. Don't know Unless how you it's somewhere out, the we might have to wait for you to for you to see that. It'll be, that'd be a pretty important one to see. Well, we'll have to figure that out. Um, my number two is more of a nostalgic pick, but since it is my own personal list, and it is a guy who um, has not really made a physical transformation since, but it's Ed Norton in American History X. Mm. Uh, that was definitely uh, influential. Um, <laughs> it, well, influential on acting. Yeah, on your political beliefs. Acting, and... you know, uh, act, uh, acting um, experience for me when... Uh, when I was in what were probably end of high school, beginning of college, um, it was it was one of those performances where like, you're like, wow, an actor can do this, an actor can change himself that much. Um, so that's my number two. Okay, uh, can you guys hear that humming in the background on my end? No, no. Okay, just want to make sure. All right, my number two. So this. Um, as a movie I'd have to see again. I think I've only seen it once. Chapin, I know you're a fan of it. Um, I was amazed when I saw that this actor was in it, and I had to go, and this was going way back, amazed to see that he was in it, and I had to go try to figure out who he was, and I'm still not convinced it was him. John Voight as Howard Cassell in Ali. Oh, yeah. Like, I don't know. He looks nothing like uh, himself in that role. Um, was it a lot of makeup? Of, a lot yeah. of makeup, yeah. Um, it's kind of crazy. You can just pull up an image of it. Stand by. 
this is a great pod. Yeah, just wait for us to search the internet. Yeah, wait yeah. for images. We're assuming everybody else is. We're waiting for our audience to pull up an image as well. Yeah, a lot of makeup. So I, I kind of stayed away from something that was like just a lot of makeup. Okay, so it won't be on your list. It won't be on my list, and I haven't seen the movie, so it definitely won't be on my list. Okay, uh, my number one is a film I think I like a lot more than you guys, but I really love it. It's one of my favorites. Um, it is Mr. Tom Hanks in Castaway. Famously, he I think he put some weight on for the first part of the movie where he plays yeah. a um, Federal Express executive. Um, then after he crashes on the island, they went away and made a much poorer film called What Lies Beneath while, uh, ca- uh, while he lost a lot of weight and then grew his beard out. Um, and later came back and I think they added to him with some makeup and like his hair and stuff, but he, he, he certainly looked like he was, had been on that Island for four years. Um, and it's a, yeah, that's a transformative performance. And I think, uh, you know, yeah. All right. My number one is probably the most obvious one. He sort of started this trend, but I gotta, I gotta put him up there cause it's, it's an amazing performance beside the waking. This is almost like the exact example of where the weight gain sort of secondary to the performance, and that's um, Robert De Niro in Raging Bull. Yes. Not much more you can say about that movie. Mm-hmm. I felt compelled to leave that off. That was the one I was considering replacing Monster with at my number four, but I was yep. like, that's either going to be really high on my list or not on my list. Like, I can't, like, stick right. at it like a meaningless number four. So, it, yeah. Yep. Um, all right. My number one, Vincent Chase in Medellin. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, I'm actually really glad none of you guys had this. I was worried. Um, uh, Heath Ledger as the Joker in the Dark Knight. Oh yeah. I thought about that. Yeah. It's more makeup, but yeah. But it's, it's well, hard it's to quantify. the performance too, though. I mean. The way he moves and laughs and talks, everything is just, you'd never know it was him. Yeah, no, it's a good pick. It was just, for me, it was sort of hard to quantify what the actual transformation, other than it being just an outstanding performance. I mean, he literally became the Joker, I think. That's going to do it for this edition of the Get Your Film Fix podcast. Please uh, send us an email at feedback at getyourfilmfixpodcast.com. Um, and I also want to encourage everybody to kind of go back and start listening to some of the episodes they may have missed and start catching up on the movies as we do so that you guys can be ready for the fixies when they come up in, you know, what, mid-April or whenever we're going to be able to get to them. <laughs> Hopefully sooner than that. I'm just kidding, of course. Um, but go back and then kind of maybe let us know and – um, you know, we like we'd like to do as much as we can to kind of shape the fixies in honor of our listeners. I don't really know what I mean by that, but um yeah, please send us some feedback and uh that'll do it. Thanks guys. I'm staying. I'm finishing my coffee. Enjoying my coffee.